0: Welcome to Trinity Church, guys, we're, we're, we're a small bunch, but uh, we've come to hear from God's Word. My name is uh, Dave, if you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors, and uh, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, I was looking back in Planning Center this week, uh, three months, over three months now we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, as we learn from the teaching of Jesus to his followers concerning this new kingdom ethic for God's people. Uh, Jesus lays it out in very simple terms. It doesn't take a PhD to understand. This doesn't t- take any formal education uh, to get it. So, so why have we been moving so slowly? Like, we've got weeks to go. This is not not the end of this uh, Sermon on the Mount by by any stretch. Why have we been going so slowly? Well, um, we've uh, come to uh, topics like Jesus uh, beating the drum against giving, prayer, fasting in order to be seen by others, to gain the respect of others. We've seen this uh, call uh, to uh, forgive others in response to the forgiveness that we've received. Very simple concepts, even a child can understand it, but very hard to do. We're awfully bad at actually carrying this out. Jesus's words are just as relevant to us today as they were uh, to uh, those in the first century in uh, which he, he spoke them. Today we're continuing our pa- practice of uh, working through uh, this uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, paragraph by paragraph, letting God set the agenda for us. I, I like to think of about and remind myself of it this way, that in, you, there's two different postures we can have to the Bible. We can either stand over it where we... we we speak into it and say, ah, oh, you know what? I like that part. That's good. Let's talk about that some more. Well, let's have a few sermons on that. And others like, ah, oh, that, that's kind of outdated for our day and age. Um, people don't actually believe that anymore. You know what? Everyone's got opinions. My opinion is we can just kind of uh, chuck that. We don't actually need to to follow what Jesus says or the the bible says here or there or we can have the posture of letting you know god's word stand over us we we put god's word over us that god's word is the authority not me that yes we have to interpret it but we're interpreting it you know based on the intention of the original both human author and the divine author the holy spirit and uh, we come to it uh, to learn uh, from god if our beliefs don't square with the scripture it's not the scripture that has to change. It's not the scripture we need to adjust and modify and neuter it to say nothing. No, it's it's my beliefs that need to change. When we we come to it and realize s- my attitude has to change, my lifestyle has to change, it, I'm the one who has to change, not the scripture. We let God's word speak into our lives and uh, change us where we need to be. A change and, th- and that's what we've come here to do letting God's Word be the authority over us as we've come to receive from God and hopefully you find this sort of uh, preaching helpful in that that we're not using some sort of interpretive voodoo to get to the this hidden meeting of a scripture and no this isn't something like that this is a uh, An opportunity for us to demonstrate how we can all study the scripture on our own together uh, with with a friend in groups as we've come to uh, learn uh, from God's word. Today we've come to Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 24 where we're going to get to talk about treasure, money, possessions, masters, all kinds of good stuff. Uh, If you didn't get a, a listening guide, You can lift your hand and and Nick would be more than happy to get you one from the back. I'm just going to volunteer him. And there's also Bibles in the seat back uh, in front of you if you'd like. Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 24. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Pray with me. Father God, we've come to you We've come to hear from you. If, if you do not speak, I, I have nothing of value to say. Speak to us. Uh, help us to examine our lives, examine our hearts uh, carefully as we want to be uh, changed uh, by you. Or remove distractions from us, the clamoring appeal of other concerns that we may focus on your word and look more like you through our time here together. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So, so we're in the body of this uh, sermon uh, on the mount. You know, Jesus has uh, made it clear that one can't enter the kingdom of heaven without righteousness that exceeds that of the super holy people of the day, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he fleshes out what that kingdom ethic looks like. He ups the ante, raises the stakes on how God's commands were typically viewed in his day and age. Chapter 6 starts with, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So, So people do that in their giving sounding a trumpet you know, before they give. They, they do that in prayer, going to the street corners to make sure everyone sees them pray, heaping up empty phrases, thinking that somehow they're impressing God with uh, such uh, phrases. H- how sh- should they pray? How should Jesus' followers pray? Is demonstrated in the example we heard a couple weeks ago uh, in uh, the Lord's Prayer that he provides. Uh, People also do that in fasting. They, remember last week, that disfigure themselves to make sure everyone knows that they are going without. But the call here is to a greater righteousness, which focuses on inward righteousness that flows out. Uh, This is the opposite of an external righteousness, which is putting a show on uh, for others. God rejoices in the former but opposes uh, the latter. And that's right where we p- pick it up in chapter 6, verse 19 today. So, so, question for you guys Have you ever realized that what is trash to one person might be treasure to another? It starts from childhood. As the philosopher Hosanna said, look, it's a treasure. And her philosopher friend, Lindy, responds, that's a rock, Hosanna. <laughs> but but it, it continues. Um, just a few weeks ago, it was junk pickup day in our neighborhood. Some of you in the community group might remember. Never been so many people driving on our road back and forth. I mean, it continued until late in the evening. I I drove by, okay? Everything looked like legitimate junk like the the, the Mark Zuckerberg's mansion wasn't here throwing away nice stuff everything looked like yeah that sofa has seen better days a decade ago like it it has a place in the special filing cabinet of the trash like it needs to go but not all people saw it that way Evidenced by how many people, even late at night, like flashlights out, going through the old PVC pipe we had cut from our, our pool. And I considered it fully junk that, you know, the value of this is not worth the time it takes to transport, whatever. But obviously, other people uh, disagreed with me, and they were doing what they most wanted to do, and they thought... Evidenced by how much time they spent and you wouldn't be out there with flashlights at 10 o'clock at night driving back and forth in a neighborhood if you didn't consider what you were finding in some way, shape, or form a treasure. And we find in this passage that, what, uh, that Jesus calls us to value what most people in our world consider trash, junk, and worthless, worthless. And uh, Jesus calls us to hold with an open hand what people, in our day and age, what people treasure. What they want most. What they strive with their whole beings after. Truly, Jesus calls his followers to a radical relation to treasure. This is radical not in the sense that God's people have never been taught by the prophets in, say, the Old Testament to prefer God over stuff. But, but know that this is radical in how Jesus portrays this choice and certainly countercultural to the average view concerning earthly treasure, both in our day uh, and in Jesus's day. So how does Jesus call his followers to this radical relation what we're, we're going to find out as, as we work our way uh, through this passage. Let's start verse uh, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So depending on what version of the Bible you have in front of you, these verses can be divided in many different ways. Some of you might have verses 19 through 21 going with um, what came before. Others might have 19 through 24 as one big section, and you think, well, they those elders weren't all that creative in how they figured out which passage they, they were going to pick. Uh, uh, but others... Uh, Other Bibles may have 19 through 21 as a separate section, 22 through 23 as a separate one, 24, just uh, dividing it all up. Uh, I would suggest to you uh, that the difficulty in this is that verses 19 through 21 function as a hinge, they uh, conclude what has uh, come before, the the section that started with six. Verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then they, they introduce, they launch into the last section of the body of this sermon, which runs through chapter 7, verse 12. So, so how do they conclude what came before? Well, you see in verse 19, it restates the, the theme in similar words, same idea. Be careful what you value because what you value will determine your reward. And Matthew includes a brilliant play on words here. He just condemned hypocrites for disfiguring or or destroying their faces. And then he uses the same Greek word here to describe the fate of their treasure, the fate of the treasure of those hypocrites where moth and rust disfigure, destroy. That's really good. They think that such disfiguration will lead to the glory they desire, but since they desire glory in the eyes of men, their treasure is disfigured, destroyed. It does not last. These verses 19 through 21 continue this choice between two opposites, as we've seen in the last few weeks two opposite postures. You know, one can make one's giving known to men and receive the praise of men, or one can hide it from nearly one's own self and receive the praise of God. One can pray to be seen and honored by men, or one can pray to commune with one's heavenly Father. One can fast so that everyone knows, or one can fast in secret so that God knows. And, And this passage adds that one can accumulate treasure on earth or accumulate it in heaven. It works that way because one's actions, values, choices flow from one's inner person, from one's heart. Now that, that leads us to our first way Jesus calls his followers to a radical relation to treasure. He calls us to pursue lasting treasure, not earthly treasure. Let me unpack this choice between earthly treasure and heavenly treasure a a little bit more for us. Uh, Earthly treasure here is defined by its destination of disappearing, being destroyed, disfigured, either by natural means like rust, moth, or or by human means of somebody coming in and stealing your, your treasure. Heavenly treasure is just the opposite. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be disfigured. And one's choice in this matter reveals the orientation, the posture of one's inner person. Actions flow from the heart. So one's treasure will either be on earth and one's heart will be set on earthly things. Or one's treasure will be in heaven and one's heart set on heavenly things. Um, as I was thinking about it this, this week, I was scrolling through a LinkedIn, and uh, some of my friends were posting this cool new slogan about their their company, making a company last forever. And I mean, it makes a great, uh, great hashtag of, um, you know, pursuing a company that lasts f- f- forever and bu- building that type of of a company, and and as I was thinking about it more, I thought, well, that that is something that's built into us, that we want to pursue things that last. We don't want to invest our lives in things that are going to be destroyed, disfigured, that people can take away, that are quickly undone after we're gone. Make, you know, hashtag make forever possible. That, that That's great, except here we see in this passage that if we're pursuing earthly treasure and trying to make that last forever, it, it's not going to work. We, we can safeguard it as much as we want. We can protect it. We can do all kinds of crazy things to make it last as long as possible, control as many variables as we think we can control, but ultimately it's heavenly treasure that lasts. And, and here, here's the, the problem. I, I in, Discussed in a theoretical vacuum, I mean, it makes perfect sense. We should pursue things that last. Heavenly treasure. Not pursue earthly treasure. Who, who won't raise his or hand, her hand uh, for that? Uh, But the problem is that this isn't a college class. This is real life. And storing up earthly treasure has the appearance of wisdom. You you know it. So do I. Bigger house, nicer car, lavish vacations, financial security. All kinds of things. That that sounds pretty attractive. And, And see one key here. Jesus never says, don't pursue treasure. He knows that valuing, cherishing, treasuring is built into our DNA. He created us. He knows how we're made, purposefully as he did it. He's saying we're we're pursuing cheap, disposable things. Treasure something? Absolutely. But treasure that which lasts. Heavenly treasure, not earthly treasure. He never says, don't place value on earthly things. Uh, He knows we'll have an attraction to what he created. Stuff, experiences, relationships, sex. They're all very good gifts from a good creator, but they make awful treasures. And it's not that we need to try to tell ourselves that these things are all bad tell ourselves that sex is bad, having stuff is bad, and the like. No, we need to value Jesus more. We need to find more delight in heavenly things than earthly things. Jesus needs to captivate me more than anything else so that with joy, I would give up anything to have him. So you ask, well, what does uh, it look like to treasure Jesus and his kingdom like that? Well, I know this is at the risk of spoiling this uh, short parable in chapter 13. But I, I think I'm safe. It's going to be a while till we get there. So I'm just going to go on the assumption that we'll all kind of forget it by the time we get to chapter 13. And, and go for it anyways. Jesus says, Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's how treasuring Jesus and all that is where he is in heaven, above earthly treasure, that's what it looks like. It's not primarily about devaluing everything that we own, telling ourselves that it's not worth all that much. It's first and foremost about seeing the surpassing worth of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven and then arriving at the realization that everything else I have and could pursue pales in comparison to that. So what does this guy do after he finds this treasure? He goes and sells all his stuff to buy the field. And what does it say? He were then in his joy. He does it with joy because he's seen the surpassing worth of this treasure. At that point, any of his things don't really matter to him anymore. He is... Captivated by that treasure and wants that above all else. And, and that's the, the type of joy we're called to hear. Often, when we discuss, you know, heavenly treasure, earthly treasure, um, we can get the undertone of, yeah, I don't really want to give up my stuff and, pleasures in this world but I guess if I have to I guess if you insist it's an either or I guess but but that's not the attitude here the attitude is is with joy that that's not the attitude of Jesus towards this battle between earthly riches and heavenly ones the man who finds this treasure in a field sells all he has with joy he doesn't care how much it's worth or how much he'll have left. That, that's irrelevant at this point in view of the value that he has found of this treasure in the f- field. This pursuit of heavenly treasure is a pursuit of joy, joy that lasts in a world addicted to momentary, fleeting joy, which disappears as quickly as it appears. That this isn't a call to uh, a miserable life. This isn't a call to not care about earthly things. This is uh, a call to experience abundant joy rooted in that which lasts, anchored in heaven. So so here's a question for us. Well, let's discuss it in community groups this week. What are you doing to cultivate joy in heavenly treasure so that you value Jesus above all else. What are you doing to cultivate this type of joy? And just a hint. It starts with the basics of the Christian life. Every morning I, I don't wake up with that type of mindset. So reading God's word to orient, reorient my thoughts... Prayer as I want to commune with the one true God. Being part of a church like ours where we have uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us in this pursuit. As DJ discussed last week, uh, possibly fasting as we want to uh, focus on God. And, and then let's, this week, let, let's talk about how we can combat specific temptations uh, towards setting our hearts on earthly t- treasure. We, we face similar struggles, but the, those temptations can work their way out in, in different ways. Let me give you an example. Uh, f- for example, well, one could crave a Maserati and be all about uh, that. Why? Maybe for that person, it's to gain the approval of others, to friends even strangers to you know, look the other way. Wow, man, that, that's awesome. But another person actually struggling with the same temptation just in a different way could choose to drive a junky car that you know, was losing, missing parts as it uh, drove to, to church this morning. If, that's per- if, if the person's heart is doing that because that person wants to be seen as religious, as humble in the sight of others. If, th- if that's where that person's heart is, uh, that person's heart is in the same place of that person who is outrightly displaying riches, you know, very intent on the pursuit of the approval of others well both of these people are doing it just in different in different ways you know one person wants to make sure everyone sees their earthly stuff the other person is wanting to make sure that other people sees their perceived religiosity perceived contentment for both it's the same problem just a different sides of the coin you know, both of them are longing for the approval of others over the approval of the God who sits in heaven. That they're both seeking earthly treasure. One without trying to hide his material wealth and the other in the name of religiosity. God calls us to, to lay up lasting treasure. Treasure that is in heaven that cannot be destroyed, cannot be taken away. This is important as... He knows that one's heart and treasure are linked together. You, you can't pursue earthly treasure and have your heart set on God and vice versa. Why does verse 21 end with this focus on the heart? Well, God isn't primarily interested in your, your money or your stuff. So if you're here or if you're listening to this online, be relieved. We're not a church who is primarily out to get your money. God's got plenty of it. God's good. God made it all. God's, God owns everything. So he's good. I, let me promise you that. God, God wants your heart. And he knows that what you treasure will indicate the location of your deepest affections. Indicate the location of your heart. As Jesus continues in this sermon, he keeps discussing a treasure. You and I might m- miss this at first. It seems that the next couple verses seem, could seem a little random, departing from the logic of this passage. Uh, but, but that's not the case. It's actually an illustration here. Um, in, the, in the next couple verses... Uh, Jesus' call is to employ earthly treasure to demonstrate righteousness from the inside out. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So, so at first, this can be a confusing illustration. I read over this a few times. Maybe you're reading over a, a second or third time and like, ah, I don't know what this, where Jesus is going with this. Here's why this can be confusing. We come in with preconceived notions and, and just assume that's how people 2,000 years ago uh, viewed it. So, in terms of sight, we think of images from the outside going into the eye. It's called intermission. But but that's not the only or the primary view concerning sight in the ancient world. Instead, the more prevalent view in Jesus' time in that part of the world was extramission. That the eye would reflect Project what is on the inside. Uh, th- this is the accepted thought of the day, which I, I believe uh, Jesus is using here in this passage. Not how we view it today, but th- this is an illustration, and Jesus uses the understanding of uh, the people in his day uh, to make uh, this illustration. Jesus, He's not trying to teach a science lesson. Jesus knows Far better than we know how sight works. Far better than even the wisest um, scientists in our day uh, know. He knows that. But he's given an illustration here. He created it all. This isn't a science lesson. This is something far more important. Jesus is teaching concerning one's inner being. If the eye is healthy... The, the greek word here expresses the idea of singularity of wholeness pennington insightfully writes wholeness as a root concept can take on many hues and connotations depending on the context in the ancient jewish context when discussed in conjunction with money and the goods of the world uh, this word communicates the sense of generosity and kindness Singularity or wholeness that is free from envy, greed, and malice, so that the so whole person generosity. This is clearly the literary context here with the heading of 6 19 through 21, in, introducing the theme of treasure. 6 24, emphasizing the choice between God and money. And then verses 25 through 34, unpacking the soul splitting danger. Of anxiety about the goods of this world. So if one's eye is whole, that indicates that the rest of oneself is whole. There's an organic connection here between the inside and outside of the person. But then look at the contrast. If one's eye is bad, the Greek word here is for evil. Now, if we read that as If one has an evil eye, that that brings up some interesting connotations, right? This isn't just an eye that needs glasses. This is an evil eye in ancient literature in the context of money, possessions, which this is. An evil eye refers to somebody who is envious, stingy, greedy. Matthew uses it later in his The gospel in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. God, the owner, uh, states that the laborers should not have an evil eye toward his generosity and blessing. in giving a full day's wages to those who came in the last hour near the end of the day. Again, this evil eye of greediness, stinginess, envy. Evidence is a connection between the internal and external of the person. If your eye is, evi- is evil, it evidences that the whole person is characterized by greed, envy, stinginess. And then as we return to, so what does it mean to have a good eye? Given this understanding, we realize that we are exhorted here toward generosity earthly treasure is not meant to be worshipped, but meant to be employed in the service of God, demonstrating righteousness that works its way from the inside out. By treating earthly treasure like that, we we show that we we actually don't see it as treasure. We don't view it as, as treasure unlike how the people all around us view it. We don't see it as treasure because we hold it with an open hand. Again, this is the type of righteousness that isn't a show like that of the scribes and the Pharisees. No, this external righteousness and generosity, it comes from internal righteousness and generosity. So practically, what does that mean for us? Well, that means holding earthly riches with an open hand, understanding that all I have ultimately comes from God. God can give, God can take it away. And demonstrating this generosity, kindness toward others. One strange thing I found in my own heart and that of others is that as Christians, sometimes we're drawn to this concept of Tithing. Why? Well, as I've thought about it more often, it's because I want a number. I I, I want a number to, so I know, all right, let me just pay God what I owe him, and bam, we're good. I can spend my money, my time, my energy on other things. But Jesus' teaching on money is far more difficult than that. Everything belongs to God. We give to the church. We give to others because God is so generously given to us. It's, it's grace giving. It's, it's not just fulfilling a duty, a, a number, and bam, we're good. Jesus is looking much deeper into our hearts. You see, you can give 10% of your income, and even throw in a little extra just to be safe, but but not please God. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They, they had perfected this. I mean, they were tithing out of their spice racks. I mean, if if you're going getting that serious, oof, that, that, that's some uh, uh, some rough stuff there. But it was done in order to please man to put on a show and. and Jesus said earlier here that they have all their reward. So so let's talk about it in, in group this week. Think about it this week. How we can worship God and employ earthly treasure, demonstrating that we don't actually see it as treasure, that our true treasure is in heaven where Jesus is. And this leads us to the heart of the matter concerning money, and possessions. This is not a new idea, but it is the climax of what Jesus has been talking about. Jesus calls us to serve God alone, not earthly treasure. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money at first critical read you might think oh that that sounds good that sounds catchy but as you think about it more you might think I don't know if that's fully true you know, why can't I serve both I mean I can have a couple jobs right and uh, you know working in management I, I understand that certain job combos uh, don't you know, work too well, you know, for me working at a hotel, you can't really have a person selling for two hotels that are competing with each other. And and certainly there's a possibility of, you know, scheduling, uh, you know, depending on when the two employers want a person to work. But there there are benefits too, that um, an employee can bring more to the table because of the crossover between uh, those two jobs. You know, often some good principles at one job are very applicable to a, a position at another job, and vice versa. Well, the concept here isn't of employers, of which you could very well faithfully serve both. the The concept here is masters, owners, that the original audience would have immediately thought of the master-slave concept in their culture, different and how it manifested itself here in our country. Uh, And we've unpacked that a few weeks ago here at Trinity, so I'm not going to spend more time on that. But the call here is to undivided loyalty. And who is competing for that loyalty? It's God and money. Or or the word mammon here, some of your Bibles may have. It's, It's a transliteration of the Aramaic word so in Greek it, uh, Matthew writes he just uses the Aramaic word doesn't translate it um, as he as he writes this. Uh, most English translations choose to translate it as money which is about as close as of a translation as you can get. Uh, the word mammon like how we use the word money today includes Uh, both uh, possessions and wealth. It's broader than just physical. Money includes the goods that said money can purchase. So is mammon necessarily bad? No, it's a necessary part of life to have some money possessions. Can it be used as a means for evil? Absolutely. Absolutely. Here the worship of the one true God is pitted against the worship of an idol, Mammon. That this imagery would evoke numerous Old Testament correlations, echoes, uh, for the original readers, hearers uh, of uh, this passage. Uh, The first one that comes to my mind is that of Elijah on Mount Carmel, if you might remember. The, the one true God versus Baal in, in an epic showdown between uh, Elijah and these 400 prophets of Baal. Uh, remember how they went to extreme uh, lengths and even uh, the these prophets of Baal and cutting themselves to try to get their God to answer. And Elijah went to extreme lengths uh, proving that uh, when, when God did display His power, that it wasn't uh, some uh, some trick that Elijah pulled out, it it was a no no parlor tricks uh, for Elijah. This it was a this is a showdown like that one. This time between God and Mammon, and, and the original readers here certainly couldn't help. Think of the basic confession of the Old Testament, of Judaism, the the Shema, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's a statement prescribing undivided loyalty to God. That There's a choice that runs through this passage. Pursuing earthly treasure or pursuing heavenly treasure. Having an evil eye or having a good and generous i serving mammon or serving god the worship of god and the worship of earthly treasure are opposed to one another you can't worship both they are forever pitted against each other you have to choose this this is an either or not a both and and see jesus's reasoning in this he says for either he will hate the one and love the other Or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You see, it's not an issue of external allegiance. It's a matter of the heart and one's internal affections as they flow their way out. One can do a convincing job externally of balancing serving God and money. However, God's looking for a fully devoted heart to Him. He isn't fooled by those who want to use him to serve their true God of money, of stuff. Well, we can easily see the external appearance of serving both God and mammon in, say, things like the prosperity gospel, the idea of using the church and raising money from vulnerable people in the name of serving Jesus to fund one's, say, uh private jet a purchase for for Jesus of course uh, however we, we can find it more difficult to identify that in our own lives how we're trying to serve both God and Mammon well, let's let's talk about that this week let's let's think about it and talk about it in group the call of Jesus is a to a pursuit of lasting treasure it's an inner posture of generosity that works its way out. It's service to God alone. And these are all interwoven together. What is that lasting treasure? Well, first and foremost, it is our triune God himself. He invites us to his new heavens, his new earth, provides us with a heavenly and eternal reward of joy, and, and that joy is in all the good things in heaven where he is. But, but first and foremost, in our opportunity to enjoy him forever. Let's pray.